0: Welcome to the Beer Edge Podcast. I'm Andy Crouch. We'll get into the show in a moment, but first I've got Greg Taylor on the line, and his company, Source Brewing Company, is a sponsor of the program. We're talking about Source Brewing's Inclusion and Diversity Scholarship. Hi, Greg. Tell us a little bit more about the scholarship. So looking
1: around the brewing industry, one area we definitely think there could be some improvement is uh, the subject of inclusion and diversity and we are proponents, and we think it would make for you know a lot you know better, more creativity, um, different mindsets and cultures views on things and you know that always you know variety is the spice of life and we like to represent you know all beer has to offer and all the, uh, the culture and personality and that comes along with it. We think it's beautiful, want to celebrate it. So the way we thought we could make the most direct impact in the industry we love so much is by creating a scholarship to help. Someone who is underrepresented in the brewing industry, get a world-class education, and we're partnering up with the Siebel Institute of Technology, America's oldest brewing school, to offer a full ride to do the concise course in brewing technology.
0: We're excited to have Source Brewing as a sponsor of the Beer Edge podcast, and Greg Taylor will be back with us at the bottom of the program. But in the meantime, I'd invite folks to check out Source Brewing's website at sourcebrewing.com for more information on the Inclusion and Diversity Scholarship, and the brewery. Thanks for listening to the Beer Edge podcast. Before we get to this week's conversation, I'd invite you all to visit BeerEdge.com to sign up for our weekly newsletter or grab some merch. For all of you smoked beer fans, you've got to get your hands on our new Camp Rock Beer t-shirts and our slick camping mugs. And for those of you who love lager beer, of course, you can help us as always by defending Pilsner and buying a t-shirt and a big, beautiful lager mug. I'd also invite you to check out my partner John Hall's podcast, Drink Beer, Think Beer, which drops with new episodes every Wednesday. John is a master of the engaging, lively interview. And his style always brings out the best in his stellar guests. And check us out on social media, we're everywhere at the beer edge. In the world of bars, pubs, and dives, one of the greatest signs of respect is to have a bar stool named after you. John Hall has a bar stool named after him in a Tennessee brewery, so there's no accounting for taste. But then for others, it's a queer sign of respect. The late great publican Don Younger of the Horse Brass Pub in Portland, Oregon had a corner seat at the now-closed Falling Rock Beer Bar in Denver named after him. And with its recent closure, I wonder what happened to that chair. In the beer industry, one legit sign of respect is to have a brewery name a beer after you. And it's not something that often happens for beer writers. It's an honor that I've not yet had, and that's probably for the best. Instead, Sandlot Brewery in Denver years ago won some GABF medals for its Vienna-style lager, the playfully named Clueless Beer Writer. I sometimes wonder whether that was named for me. But then there are writers like my guest today. Norm Miller has been a professional journalist for almost 20 years, having worked at the same paper in Central Mass that entire time. He's from the region, and indeed lives in the house he grew up in. He jokes that there's not much more to do around there other than apple picking and some fishing. Norm was a little hesitant to be interviewed. And as a fellow journalist, I get that. We're used to asking the questions and it can be a little uncomfortable handing the recorder to somebody else. But I'm happy he agreed to chat, as he's a colorful character with some great stories to tell. Norm is an interesting guy, as you'll hear, so it's easy to see why the Wormtown Brewery in Worcester, Massachusetts, decided to name a beer after him. It's a great story that matches a great beer, and he tells it in this interview. Norm and I have known each other for a long time, and we have some unusual things in common. First, we're both trained journalists folks for whom writing and reporting are not just a passion, but ingrained in ourselves. We're also, of course, longtime beer writers, both having covered beer in New England for decades. But we also have another connection, one I don't often discuss. Beyond my work as a beer writer, my more full-time gig is as a criminal defense attorney in the Boston area. And Norm's primary beat has long been crime and the justice system. We both speak a common language unique to the courts in the Commonwealth, And we both know a lot of people in common, including lawyers, judges, and even some defendants. And we both know it's never a boring day in the world of crime. Norm Miller has been covering it for almost 20 years for the Metro West Daily News. He's covered a lot of serious crimes, including murders and too many trials to count. We talk about his experience as a crime reporter and how he wants to evolve his reporting beyond simply putting forth the details of day-to-day offenses. And Norm wants to more deeply report on why these crimes are happening, their underpinnings, and he is also increasingly concerned about the ethics of reporting on crime in an age where the internet never forgets. For a reporter at a reasonably small market paper, Norm has a knack for going viral. His first experience with internet fame came as part of a crazy few minutes he had at a local police station when a woman came in and threw bacon against the reception window. He talks about what that was like and the experience of going viral. More recently, however, Norm went viral for the column he wrote when he retired as a beer writer. The column garnered coverage around the globe because of its candid nature. He wrote that he was giving up beer writing because he needed to stop drinking. He talked about the impact his tasting was having on both his physical and mental health. It was a bold and honest piece of writing and should be required reading for everybody in the beer industry. Spend any time at a beer event or industry get-together and it quickly becomes obvious that some, and perhaps even many in the beer business, have an unhealthy relationship with the product they sell. Whether it's overconsumption, drinking and driving, or forgiving behavior that would otherwise be unforgivable but for the presence of alcohol, it's the third rail of the American beer business, one that few dare to touch. But Norm's column dared to go there, and we discuss it and his present thoughts on the issue in our conversation. We also talk about his star turns as a television commentator on Nancy Grace, his love of 80s slasher films, and what it's like to work in the trenches on the police beat for so many years. Here's my conversation with journalist, author, and all-around good guy Norm Miller. You know, as someone who has covered almost the daily workings of, of crime in the judicial system in you know a part of Massachusetts, you know, what you know, what got into you to tor- sort of look beyond just those cases, because I mean, those are the ones that grab, oftentimes grab headlines are the ones that, you know, lead to clicks and, and certainly are what's day to day easy to get lost in. But for you, yeah. why why do you want to push beyond that?
2: It's, you look at it, and especially in this day and age with the internet and everything like that, if you what's the real purpose of writing about a 21 year old who got arrested for drunk driving, mm-hmm. even if there's a crash, if it's going to affect him 20 years later, he might never have had another drink. But if you write about the issue of young people drink, dr- drunk driving, maybe you can explore the issues or even beyond that. Just, yeah, you can write about the small level drug dealers, alleged drug dealers who sell dime bags or sell $25, uh, sandwich baggies of cocaine, but maybe, where this drug's coming from what are what is being done locally for these people instead of just writing about the dealer because i mean you know this and mm-hmm. probably a lot of people know this a lot of those street level dealers are users themselves and deal basically to support their own habit so if you're reporting on this day to day yeah i mean people want to know this stuff and it's important to know what's going on in town but i think it's also important to know what is being done about it or how is this getting this bad or, you, you know,
0: yeah.
2: different ways to look at that. I mean, obviously you still have to cover some day-to-day crimes. There's still going to be some very serious incidents or public safety risks. Uh, for example, uh, the other day there was a alleged home invasion. They're looking for a suspect. They don't know who he is. So, yeah, we're going to report that because that's also a public safety issue. They're looking for someone that they don't know if it's a random incident or not or something like that. Mm-hmm. So. So it, it's day-to-day you're evaluating. I mean, I still call every single police department. I still get the police logs to go through the arrest. And because even if I'm not going to write about them now, it might show a pattern. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, wow, we're seeing, well, we haven't seen meth in this area that often. And now in the last three months, I've noticed four or five meth arrests. Right. What's going on with that? So that's, so still, still working the beat and still talking to the police every day and Still, still, I still try to find out what's going on in town and keep abreast
1: of everything.
0: What was your background before getting into into being a beat reporter? Because that is a very particular type of work, and you know the crime beat is even more particular. Get, you know, were you just thrown into it, or did you have some some other training or experience? Because as you're saying, mm-hmm. it can be pretty intense.
2: Yeah. Well, basically, I was an English major at college, but I was on the school paper. I actually wanted to be a sports writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Interestingly, my first newspaper out of college, I started at news. I switched to sports, but then uh, moved on to news when I uh, moved on from that newspaper and just stuck. And and I've always, interestingly, not even anymore, but I used to be a real tr- uh, big true crime reader. Okay. Uh, even back when I, like, I, mean, I was reading true crime books down when I was 11 or 12 years old. And so I always had an interest in crime writing and everything like that. So... It just I filled in a lot of times for the police reporter and started doing some crime stories and when the police reporter left I they asked me if I wanted to do it and I said sure and that's basically how it happened
0: was there a particular story that you covered and you thought, you know, this is a pretty interesting beat. This is one that I think I think I could do long term because, you know, there are obviously general assignment writers, you know, perhaps mm-hmm. less so than they maybe used to be. Uh, and then there are, you know, very particular beats like you're talking about like sports and crime. You know, crime is a is can be a tough one to, to do. Was there a particular case or a particular time when you were like, a moment when you just decided, yeah, I think I can do this one?
2: You know, it's not like any particular time, but I I like covering trials. I find criminal trials fascinating even uh, stuff most people find dreadfully boring during a trial I just find interesting
0: because there's plenty <laughs> plenty that there is boring in trials. People think the trials are all very exciting stuff like you see on TV. they are oftentimes very boring.
2: Oh yeah I mean uh, a murder trial could easily last three or four weeks but I all I, I just I, I know it's I'm not a super competitive person. But when there's a story that gets like a lot of attention, and I know there's a lot of media, i I want to be able to I want to be the person who's covering it the best, and it really gets really gets my uh, competitive juices flowing. So a big a big case that draws a lot of people in. Um, The biggest one, the first one that was ever like that for me personally was the 2006 case. Was uh, you probably heard about the Entwistle murder case out of? I mean, that got literally. There's probably about 100 reporters uh, from all around the world who came to cover that.
0: And, and for, those, I, for those who don't know, talk of, about—I talk of, mean, I'm very familiar. Like I yeah. said, being a criminal defense attorney yeah. here in Mass, talk about the Neil Entwistle case okay. and what was the experience like covering it.
2: Yeah. Well, this was—it was in 2006. Uh, a brief that uh, was in January 2006. A Hopkinton police did a well-being check on a house in Hopkinton. And they found a woman and her infant daughter dead in the bed. Uh, they later found out that they died of shotgun wounds. Uh, the husband was nowhere to be found. Long story short, turned out they were able to track him through credit cards and video and everything like that. He went to Logan Airport that night, flew to England, and uh, basically left the, left the country uh, to go back home. And he ended up getting arrested. Um Drew huge attention from mm-hmm. uh, all over the, Europe and the United States. I think it was the reason I think it drew a lot of attention. This is just, people don't remember 2006, personal web pages weren't as popular as right. they are now. And the Entwistles had this really big, popular website that had hundreds of photos, basically the whole life of their daughter and their marriage. So you had this ready made, like people really started to feel like they knew this family just by looking at this website. Yeah. So it drew so much attention. Uh, ended up going to trial, uh, three week long trial. Uh, he was eventually found guilty. He tried to uh, the defense tried to say that the mother killed herself, shot herself through the daughter, then killed herself. Um, he was found guilty. Sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. But, I mean, this just the level of media was incredible. Mm-hmm. I mean, you name the uh, the number of the TV bigwig who does crime stuff, Nancy Grace, Greta Van Susteren, all these were all out there. They always had reporters on their stations and uh, everything. It was crazy. I mean, dealing with the British media, they they were uh, interesting folk.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. And you, so, I mean, you yourself at that time were were on television a lot for for these types of cases, and you've been someone who has been able to to comment on your work. What was that experience like?
2: It was interesting. Um, Nancy Grace is an experience. Um, <laughs> she's very intense, and I—I I remember uh, it, was, it wasn't even myself on that show. It was uh, my editor. I was on a different show that night, but I was watching him from the blue uh, green room, and she starts yelling at him about Neil Antwistle getting food when he got brought to the Hopkins Police Station, and yeah. <laughs> but I mean, she she's uh I was on her show once and she ended up pulling out handcuffs and like, this is what I would have gave them. Yeah. And I, can't even <laughs> which case, I can't even remember what case that was. It was either that one or another. I was on her for a couple different cases, but yeah, she's uh, intense to be on it. Honestly, it's being on TV. wasn't my favorite experience just yeah. because it's a pain. And like, you know, as a reporter, you're trying not to give opinion and that's mm-hmm. what they want from you. And, If I'm not covering a case, hey, I have no problem giving an opinion about the case. But if I'm covering it, I'm trying to be as unbiased as possible during the coverage of it because I don't know where the case is going to take. And if I suddenly go on to Nancy Grace or I was on Catherine Cryer a lot during the Neil Entwistle case, oh, yeah, he definitely did it. And next year during the trial, it came out like, oh, wow, this doesn't look like, you know, how can readers take me as. If I suddenly said he's guilty, and it turns out, oh, maybe I wasn't right, type right, thing. Right, try so, to be not non-opinion. So I don't think I was probably the best guest for TV.
0: <laughs> and you, I mean, you're a pretty prolific writer. I think I looked on this on the. So you write for the Metro West Daily News and have for a long time. Yep. Um, I think you published four stories yesterday or the day before alone. Um. You know, what, what in your mind does it take to work a beat like the crime beat?
2: You just have to be able to separate it. Uh, I mean, you can... I mean, I've known reporters over the years who got, you know, got very, very depressed, very, very sad. You know, you're dealing with a lot of things. Guilty or not guilty, you're dealing with a lot of people who are victims and defendants and defendants' mm-hmm. families are going through a lot of bad things. You have to find a way to separate, like, have something to take your mind off. You can't hold on to it. I mean, sometimes you can't. There's some... When I'm covering a trial, I mean, that's all I'm thinking about. I covered, there was one point I covered two murder trials back to back, three, but one ended the same day as the next one started. Like the guilty plea came in yeah. the same day as, so I was in court for six straight weeks. And, yeah. and, that, and I, and I honestly, by, by like second week of the first trial, I started dreaming about the cases just because they were blending <laughs> in together. And that's not even an exaggeration. That's yeah. that, all my mind, all my waking hours, because. That's all you're doing, but you have to have like I like to read. So after work, I'll just read a book. You know, you just you have to do something to occupy your mind so you don't obsess about these things when you're off hours. Because if you're going to obsess about about it after hours, you're you're not going to have a long career as a police reporter or a crime reporter.
0: So you're someone like myself who's used to going to court. You know, quite quite often, and frankly, I think you go to court more often than I do. How you know, we both know that COVID has impacted you know the ju- judicial system, not just in Massachusetts but around the country. But for us, you know, suddenly court hasn't been open for almost a year, and it you know it's been very you know very slow, and we haven't had really trials in yeah. in a year. How is that? How do you do your work as a crime beat reporter when there you know there are no court proceedings?
2: Well, luckily there there are court proceedings, and all the criminal courts uh, do their arraignments either by Zoom or mm-hmm. phone. So, if there's something I wanted to cover, I could still cover. It's a little different because, especially if it's not on Zoom, you're not. Luckily, I'm good at distinguishing voices. Yeah. But I mean, you have to be able to know the different people who are speaking so you can quote. But if there's Zoom, it's it's actually not that issue. If anything, actually. It's, I know it's odd to find, but I actually find it's a little more efficient because it's fresher in my mind. I'm not rushing to write everything. I type quicker than I write anyhow. Yeah. So it actually worked out fine having Zoom arrangements when I have. And I'm also, you know, like I said, uh, that I think that also I probably contributed more to trying to go more towards issues anyhow because right. I'm seeing it a little differently as well just because I'm not in court all the time. So it, it was, I think it was good because... There's a lot of time, a lot of, I can get a lot of work done when I'm not in court that I can't get done when yeah. I'm in court. So that actually gave me a time to start working on other things. And I'm working on a lot more articles that will take more than a day or two, you know, might take a week or two mm-hmm. that I can work on throughout the day that I wouldn't be able to get to if I was sitting in court from 9 a.m. to the arraignment. Actually, they don't get to the arraignment until 3. That's right. six hours. I'm doing nothing. Yes. So. <laughs>
0: And you're the increasingly rare journalist who has worked for the same company for 20 years, um, let alone in you know local news. You know, as we know, in recent years have not really been very kind to local news. What's kind of your view from you know from the trenches? It's
2: you know it, it's difficult. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. Um, it, it's changed so much. Staffing has changed and everything. But I mean. It, I still think local local journalism plays an important role, and that's why I still enjoy the job. After all this time, I've been a reporter totally for 20... Okay, I'm going to get old. Uh, 22, 23 years now, I can't even remember. Mm -hmm. But, uh, no, probably closer to 24, wow. Uh, But anyhow, I still think it's very important. I think local news, because you can get national news from anywhere, but something that's happening, no matter where, I live in Lombister, the only place I'm going to get Lombister news is either the Telegram Gazette or the Sentinel Enterprise. It's not going to be on. The, it's not gonna be in the Globe. It's not going to be in the Herald. It's mm-hmm. not going to be. So that's, I don't, it's ca- different. Uh, you know, it's, you just have to, it's a lot more work than it used to be. Not that you didn't care, but if you had a slow day, it didn't matter because we had a big staff now. When you have a slow day, it affects everything because we don't have it. Yeah. It's also more online oriented.
0: Mm-hmm. Many
2: more people read online than they read in print nowadays.
0: In so, uh, you know, a in a world of like next door and Facebook and other social media, like you're referencing, you know, is there still a role? You know, what's the role for journalists covering the local news? We still,
2: as you probably know, and a lot of people know, just because it's on social media, people get like, I heard this, I heard that. Yeah, we we, we strive to get the real story. We it might be something like, hey, I'll just use something that happened in Lumbster, not even anything that works. There was a uh, local video store that was raided, and you go. On, that's why I, I actually, you know, I tipped off my editor because the Telegram is one of our newspaper companies, uh, one of the newspapers my company owns, and I shot over the editor. Hey, I heard the such and such video store is raided. Online, I was, you know, on Facebook, I'll say, tons of rumors. Why? Right. It was porn. It was drugs. It was such and such and this. It was such and this. The guy ended up getting charged, he was uh, alleged to have been running a fencing ring. He was basically uh, being accused of paying drug users and homeless people to steal things and bring in and give them money. And they found millions of dollars worth of stolen goods in the store in his home, authorities said. So you can't trust what you see online. The goal is, at least from my standpoint, is – yeah. We might get the inkling of what's the story from online, but we try to get what really happened and try to be accurate and try to get the real story so our readers know what's happening rather than what someone might have heard happened. So I still think we still have the standard that we're going to do as accurate as we possibly can and get the real story.
0: Now, you obviously had started doing sports and then moved into the crime beat. How did you come to write the beer nut column and, and cover the beer industry?
2: It was interesting. Uh, years, Framingham has a very large Brazilian population. And years ago, this probably about 2005, uh, a Brazilian beer, Brahma, I think it's called, mm-hmm. started doing... Um, they basically bought out every billboard in Framingham uh, and were advertising. So they had one of our business staffers write an article about that. And my editor... I had I was going to beer fest. Uh, I had a good friend who was at the newspaper. I was one of the guys I went on beer trips with and everything like that. He goes, "Hey, you drink beer? Why don't you do like a little eight inch review of Brahma beer?" Mm. So that's how it first started. I did the review uh, for my understanding, The article did well, and he, go, he goes, "Hey, how would you like to do a weekly column?" <laughs> and that's basically how it started. I never even thought about doing a weekly beer column. I mean, I was crime writer the furthest away from doing any feature stuff like that so it wasn't even in my mind but one of my editors uh, Rob Hannison uh, suggested it to the managing editor at the time and they thought it was a great idea and that's how it started.
0: Now everybody has a, a beer origin story but I'm not sure that many of them start with a beer like Brahma.
2: Oh I know. You know like, that's why I hated beer when I was just like I, like, I was a kid, kid in college hated beer. Uh, I was the one who brought a bottle of Captain Morgan's or Jack Daniels and the bought <laughs> two liter bottle of Coke to a party. But yeah, I, I didn't even start drinking beer until I worked at a newspaper in New Hampshire. But yeah, Brahma was the reason I started writing about beer.
0: And when you started writing the beer nut column, you know, what was your approach? How did, you know, how did you, what did you want to do with it?
2: I was, I was trying not to write for the beer geeks because mm-hmm. they already know what's going on in the world. Most beer geeks. I was trying to write for the people who might not know a lot about beer. Like I don't know, if I, I think I saw this term on Twitter by someone called like the middle class beer drinkers. Yeah, The ones who don't go online and follow everything that's going on. They drink, you know, Smutty Nose uh, Finest Kind or Harpoon IPA. They drink whatever they like. I was trying to write for those people to show them new beers that they might not have heard. So I tried not to go into the ultra beer geeky mm-hmm. writing. I tried to gear it towards the people who like good beer, but they don't know a lot about good beer. And that's what I call, like I use that term instead of craft beer. I mean... Everyone likes a different beer, so I'm that's not good not saying like Miller or Bud's not good, but I'm talking about, you know, craft beer in the in terms. I don't know what the word I'm looking for, but basically I was trying to write for people who like to drink things other than Bud Miller and course, but might not know a lot about different breweries.
0: And as you sort of were covering this um covering this niche and just covering this this beat, you know, did you, how did you come to educate yourself? How did you learn more about it? And, and then did that turn into a passion at some point? Or was it just something that you were looking, you know, just something you were covering?
2: Really, I started looking, I started reading a lot more. And I started thinking about it more, like when I was drinking beer, like thinking about what I was tasting I said, Oh, I like this. I was thinking about what I liked about it. And I, I read a lot, I like to read uh, a lot of books over the years. So and just, you know, reading online, talking to people. When I went to festivals, I talked to brewers. And just from interviewing brewers over the years, just trying to learn and pay attention. Uh, it's the same. I looked at it, that part is the same way I looked in court. Like, I, I'm i never going to know as much as a lawyer. But I try to make it, I try to learn as much as I can at a layman's could know. So I could translate what's going on into court into real speak. I tried to do as much as in what I could learn about the brewing process or brewing industry into real speak for the readers. So that was what I was trying to do.
0: And you wrote that column for, for 12 years and that would have been hundreds and hundreds of, of, of columns. You know, what are some of the memorable ones for you? What did, what did you like to cover the, the most?
2: I liked when I, I liked when I was able to actually like tell stories about people or breweries rather than, you you know, time sometimes time just took over. I have to do like a column of reviews, and honestly, review columns actually did really well online, but I liked the columns where I could tell stories uh you know talk to people, learn their origin or learn the origin of the brewery, things like that uh you know, I tried to do more issue stories unfortunately, you know time wise as you know as you can imagine, crime took most of my time, but right. i tried uh tr- tried to spend time working on some of the bigger beer articles um and like I said, I like talking. I like talking to people and telling their stories. That's the kind of thing I like to do when I had the time to do it.
0: And which were the you know which were some of the stories that were more memorable for you? Or which you know breweries you know were the stories that you liked to you know that you liked to cover the best?
2: I really liked my uh, really I, when Jack's Abbey Brewing first opened in mm-hmm. Framingham. That was really interesting to me. I, one, I was just, just it was the first brewery come to Framingham, and they just had a good story about you know. I mean, just being a family together, the, the father giving up, like, basically mortgaging his retirement to help fund this. It was a fun, interesting story. Uh, I liked when Wormtown Brewery in Worcester first opened. That was Ben I had met a couple times before, but he had an interesting past. Just, you know, he started Neshoba Brewery, Neshoba Winery. Mm, right. And I, you probably know the history of Neshoba Winery, how fast they go through the brewers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It was interesting to see that he got to that point. I mean, they're doing really well. Uh, you know, those. I actually had a really interesting interview with uh, Sam Calagione from Dogfish Head when he wrote that book. I can't remember who his co-writer was. Uh,
0: he said beer, she said wine. Yep, that was Marnie. I think it was Marnie Old.
2: Yeah, that was. I had a fun interview with those two. They were fun to hang out with, fun to talk to. Uh, so you know, like I said, it's that kind of thing I like. So,
0: and you yourself actually wrote two books. How did you decide to graduate from writing the column to writing? And those books were, you know, the Beer Lovers New England and you know Boston Beer: A History of Brewing.
2: Interesting. Uh, the publishers for both contacted me. Uh, nice. It's, yeah. It was a, the Beer Lovers was almost never happened because i almost deleted the email i thought it was uh i thought it was just a random press release and then i reread it i was like oh crap so i almost deleted that whole email without even finishing reading it and so that i wrote that one and i think came out in 2012 you know similar to your book but it's hard to keep up with a brewery like that i mean i did a second edition and i was like two years later and there was Eighty new breweries in New England, or something like that. It was just like an extra thirty thousand words on top of what it was already there. Yeah, so. that,
0: I mean that was that was rough. I I wrote, as you know, I wrote uh, the Good Beer Guide to New England in I think it was some two thousand five or two thousand six, somewhere in that neighborhood. And at that yeah. point, there were I think a hundred, you know, somewhere around hundred and twenty breweries in all of the New England states. Uh, yeah. And now. There are, you know, as you know, like it, I don't know that we could write books like this anymore. No,
2: and th- it would be impossible to keep up with it. I mean, even by the time my second edition came out, by that time, there was already like 30 different breweries from the time I submitted <laughs> the final edits to the time the book actually came, the second edition came out. But then the second book, uh, I, I used to do a podcast with a bunch of other New England beer people, called uh, the Seacoast Beverage Lab mm-hmm. uh, podcast. And the publisher for History Press had actually contacted uh, someone from that podcast. He wanted everyone from the podcast to collaborate, to write the New England, uh, the New Hampshire history book, uh, Beer History of, you know. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to the publisher, I go, you know, having five people write one book like that, that's not going to work out well. And so I mentioned something like, hey, if you're looking for Massachusetts, and she's like, the publisher, she was like, oh, we are looking for someone to do Boston. I was like, I can do that. So... (laughs) That's how I got that one. Again, so both times they contacted me.
0: That is the way to go, buddy. That is the way yeah, that's, to go.
2: That's the easiest way. No pitches. No stress of waiting to find out yes or no.
0: So, <laughs> I'm jealous of that. Um, so then, a few years back, you know, a local brewery in Central Mass, where you're located, you know, and, and worked, named a beer after you. Uh, that was you know one of your favorites. You know, Warm Town Brewing released yeah. a beer called Norm, which is uh, a ch- uh, coconut chocolate oatmeal stout. Yeah, they brew it, you know, only once a year, limited quantities, and indeed, you know, eventually, like a lot of other, you know, you know, singular releases, you know, their, their release date became known as Norm Day. Um, you know, how did this beer come to be?
2: Years ago, I interviewed a brewer. Uh, I can't remember which brewery. It was a brewery in Manchester, New Hampshire that went out of business, I think, in a year. Uh, the brewer asked me just randomly when I was interviewing him, like, if you could brew a beer, what would it be? And for some reason, a chocolate coconut stout just popped in my eyes. I just said that uh, out of just a throwaway. But then it just became a running joke with me just to entertain myself. So whenever I interviewed a brewer, no matter who it was, it could be someone who ran a small 500-barrel brewery, or I think I even did it to Greg Cook, I mentioned, you know, if you really want to be successful, you have to brew a chocolate coconut stout. So it just became a running joke with me. So when Wormtown opened, they were very, they were very uh, proactive, getting uh, doing beer releases. So every time they had a new beer come out, they'd have a beer release at a different bar. It wasn't necessarily just at the brewery, which was located at Peppercorns in Worcester, but at different bars. Every single time there was a release, it was on a, a bar that I could could be one of my routes home from work. I could stop in for a beer. So I'd stop in on the way home, have a beer, talk to Ben. Ben Roche, who's the brewer slash co-owner. And every time, just jokingly, I'd mention, hey, you know what would be a really big seller? <laughs> it's a chocolate coconut stout. So I think it was their second anniversary party. It was at uh, Horseshoe Pub in Hudson, if I remember. Mm-hmm. We're talking. And before I even I mentioned, you know, he's like, shut up. I'm going to brew the chocolate coconut stout. Just shut the F up about it. I'll do it. <laughs> and so, fast forward a few months later, uh, Beer Lovers New England's coming out. And uh, I'm doing my first book signing at Julio's Liquors in Westboro, a huge liquor store. And they're having two breweries pour beers in beers in Jack's Abbey and Warmtown. And Ben called me a couple days ahead of time. He goes, Hey, we're bringing that chocolate coconut stout. We're calling it Norm. <laughs> so, it, originally, it was only supposed to be a one time thing, but apparently, it was super popular. I understand, like, the Sunset Grill, which is gone forever, unfortunately, in Austin. Ba- mm-hmm. uh, they ordered, like, one one or two six-tells, and it went so quickly. They ordered more, and it didn't have more, so they had to brew more. And they just got stuck with it because from talking to Ben and other brewers of Wormtown, they all hate to brew it because it's such <laughs> a pain in the ass to brew because they use a, so much coconut. I think it's, like, one pound per gallon of liquid. <laughs> so it's a pain in the ass to brew.
0: What was your initial reaction when uh, when Ben told you that?
2: Honestly, it really. It, 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 I found out about it like my mother had actually just died a week before, mm-hmm. and so I was in a really bad mood constantly right. that week. So it actually meant a lot at the time, just because of the timing. You know, it was I think six days after my mother died that I they were he called me and told me that they were naming the beer Norm. So it really meant a lot at the time. I think it's just it's cool. I mean, yeah, I can't lie. I mean, you see a bottle with your face on it, <laughs> or like I'm actually wearing because I'm, wear, I'm I have a day off today, so I'm just wearing. Graphic, I'm actually wear, wearing a Norm shirt right now as <laughs> uh, I'm talking to you. Not I don't wear it on public because I think it's kind of a. It looked kind of weird wearing my own face on me, but I I'm not going to see anyone today. So, and it's and it's honestly a great beer. It's actually what exactly what I pictured.
0: So, yeah, and it's actually the beer is very well regarded. Is I checked yesterday, and it has a 92 out of 100 on Beer Advocate and a oh. and a 3.96 on Untapped. So, those are oh, excellent well. ratings.
2: So, I didn't do anything with it. I don't help brew it. I don't have to take any credit for it. So, yeah. Unfortunately, Ben won't take any more of my ideas uh, at planning, <laughs> but no one well give me a you won't take
0: them so and uh for those you should look up the label if you can't get it in your area you should certainly look up the label the you know the norm label is very colorful shows a cartoon version of of norm in a Hawaiian shirt enjoying what is presumably an oatmeal stout and then last year you even became super norm a, a yeah. like in an, an extreme or supersized version of norm and the label you know depicts you in a superhero costume yeah I mean
2: i i I, I I look damn good in that. I, I really, I'm thinking about getting one for real when I go back to the office eventually.
0: <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Um, you have unu- somewhat unusually gone viral several times in your life. Um, the first was due to. Uh, you know, security camera footage from an incident <laughs> when a woman showed up at a local police department and started throwing sausage and bacon at the receptionist window. And you just happened to be there at the time, to, you know, as you said, as part of your reporting job, to review the police logs at the station. You know, what was yeah. your reaction when that happened?
2: It, honestly, at the time, I was, like I said, just getting the police logs And she was standing behind me in line. So and she had this Dunkin' Donuts box. And this is, it was, I think it was like the day after Christmas, so it's not unusual for people to drop off like snacks and yep. goodies for police and fire around the holidays. So I figured she was, you know, dropping it off. So uh, you know, it'd be nice. I pulled over to the side so she could talk to the dispatcher. Then she opened the box and said, "I have breakfast for you, piggies," and just started throwing the Jesus. bacon and sausage. And this is right around. It was right around the time uh, the the first black when Black Lives Matters first started. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought it was part of that so I was like I really should start taking photos so I I had a I think I still had a Blackberry or so, and I just started taking photos I was like oh crap I should this could be a story so I started taking photos I called my editor and then unfortunately it turned out uh, it was a, ended up being a sad thing uh, apparently she had once she was in college she had developed mental health issues yeah. and but at the time I thought it was some kind of you know, police protests or anything like that, because it, it was, you don't see someone throwing bacon and sausage at a police station every day. And I mean, was- I, I could honestly say that the 20 years I've been going to the Framingham police station, that's the only time I saw someone
0: throw bacon and sausage.
2: <laughs> so, I mean, at the time, it just, I took photos, wrote notes, and then uh, called my editor and just wrote something up.
0: And you know what was your re- you know this this video because it's you're just sort of standing there in the background just kind of like looking back and forth very you know I got to say you had more poise than I would have had in in that moment watching sort of the absurdity yeah. of that what was your re- and this this you know when I think it was went through Comedy Central and a variety of other places and news yeah because uh, it's just one of those kind of throwaways that you have sometimes at the end of TV shows you know what was your reaction to to you know being a sort of a a, a player in a viral moment.
2: I just thought it was hilarious. I honestly, I, I mean, there's nothing I could do about it. I was like, this is just, it's absurd. I mean, the whole situation was absurd. I mean, I don't, I see the video and I see the photos and I just don't know why I reacted with no reaction at all, except to take photos. It was just, they're just that's what just happened. Like it was going through my mind. All I was thinking is like, what the hell is going on? I was like, Oh, I better take photos. That's that was my reaction. And like I said, being on Tosh, and there was another show like Midnight, where the guy said it, where they had to guess what was going on in the video, and it was something about signing confession to be a serial killer, something like that. and I just laughed. And so,
0: yeah, I mean, it's you know, there is people talk of the fight or flight, you know, response, and there is a third response that that people outside of journalism don't understand, which is the reporter response, and that that was clearly what you had. You just you stood your ground and and reported uh, reported the scene.
2: Yep. Yeah, the only time I can remember running at a scene was at probably about, I don't know, probably about 15 years ago. I was at a pavement factory. There was an explosion, and someone was killed. So, you know, all the media was there. And I'm talking to the police spokesman who at the time was this—he huge, like 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, mm-hmm. probably about 320. I'm talking to him just shooting the crap and because everyone else – it's just have, like, video cameras or cameras taking a photo. And next thing, this other cop comes, and he goes, back away, back away. And he starts screaming, run, run. <laughs> and next year, you see all smoke start coming out of the the, the where it didn't explode before. And next year, I see the cop I'm standing next to, like I said, the 6'6", 300-and-something-pound guy bolting. I was like, I better run my ass off. <laughs> and so that's the only time I ever remember. It's like, I could die. Well, other than that, that was a shooting incident I went to where they – thought there was a barricaded suspect in the house and I was ducking behind a police car. But that, for some reason, the immediate thing when like you see cops running towards you telling you to run, that was the one time I was like, yeah, I better get my ass moving.
0: Like I said, never a boring day in this business. Mm -hmm. No. (laughs) So the second time you went viral was for a column you wrote when you actually retired from writing your beer column. Um, You know, that column, which I had said, the beer nut column you had written for, Twelve years, and you know that you know the column went viral for a variety of reasons, but it, it showed up in places all over the world, including the New York Post. And if you forgive me, I'll just read a little bit here. You know, in the column you wrote, you know, beer has become more than just a beverage I enjoy. It has become part of, part of my persona. I don't just write the beer nut column; I am the beer nut. But if I want to live, I can't be the beer nut anymore. And to be blunt, it sucks. And you talked about in there how you, you might have been drinking you know, five or six beers you know, some nights you know, and that you were getting at times more calories you know, through, through beer than through food, just drinking a few nights a week. And so you, you concluded it by saying, you know, I am killing the beer nut so Norman, Mil- Norman Miller has a chance to live. How did you come to the decision to, to sort to quit drinking and to stop writing the column?
2: A few years ago, before I did that column, I had an incident where I had pancreatitis. I ended up in the hospital. And, you know, that scared me at the time, but mm-hmm. I started going back to the same way. And then I, before I wrote that column, I ended up back in the hospital. It turned out it wasn't pancreatitis. It was something unrelated, very minor. But it hit me. I was like, I can't keep going through this. I mean, don't I, I'm going to start off saying that I don't blame beer for my weight. I've always been the big guy in the room. That's, that's my own fault. But I think I, what happened was, you know, as breweries started growing, there was so many breweries in Massachusetts, and I would get inundated by emails or texts or Facebook, social media messages. Hey, have you tried this beer? Have you been to this brewery? And I wanted to be able to say yes. Mm-hmm. So it got to the point where I was trying to keep up with every single beer that was coming out, which is impossible. It's right. absolutely impossible. I fell into that trap is that I wanted to be the the person who could say yes to whenever someone asked me a question. Like, yes, I have had a beer. I have had that beer or I've had, been to that brewery or I can recommend such and be, such beer. I was drinking way too much and I realized even if I wasn't writing about all the beers, which I wasn't, I was drinking too much and I felt like I was falling into that trap that I wasn't going to be able to stop unless I stopped writing about beer. Yeah. So that- like I felt like I had to be the resource and I couldn't be that resource anymore if I wanted to have a decent life. So instead of just trying to stop, I like I just instead of just I just stopped. It was a way for me to do it. And that's how I had to do it, just because I didn't want to have the beer. I never felt like I needed a beer. It was more of I needed to be the person who knew about the beer when someone asked me.
0: Right. And it was if the- that makes yeah, it does. it does. I mean, there there is that inherent pressure. And especially during, you know, the time when you were writing this, you know, at some point, we just got so many breweries that everyone gave up trying to yeah. try everything. But at the time, you know, I, I certainly, you know, I thought the column was, you know, it was important at the time. And I certainly think it is even more so now, because this is, you know, often a sensitive issue for people in the alcohol industry, but one that's kind of rarely yeah. discussed, but is, you know, so present. And I try to you know, I've thought about it, you know, near daily, especially when I drink, and I'm always trying to be conscious of, you know, either how much I drink at events or at trying to, you know, be yeah. professional and have not always succeeded at that. But yeah. you know, trying to question your relationship with alcohol, uh, I think is a is an incredibly important thing, not just for right. a writer but anybody in the industry. Yeah, I mean, I
2: know, let's face it. I mean, there's a lot of people you see at every single time you go out, every single event that are to be frank, smashed right every single time. There's a lot of people who have unaddressed drinking issues. I never felt the need to drink. I haven't had a drink in months. And I I never felt, but I always, like I said, I had I had the fear of missing out. But it could have led. What happened, if I didn't stop, would that fear of missing out turn out fear of I need it? Right. And I did not want, ever want to reach that part. I have, unfortunately, had a lot of family members over the years who have been, had alcohol, I've had suffered from alcoholism. and I did not want to fall into that trap as well. And so I decided for me, it was the best option at the time. And I still drank occasionally, you know, I was having a beer here and there. Uh, they still had Norm Day. I went to that, mm-hmm. but I mean, I felt like I needed to stop for myself, uh, the calm for two reasons. One health reasons and two, and I didn't really address that as much, but the health reasons were the number one reason. Number two, I was just running out of time and, passion for it at the time as well it was just keeping up with it. And like I said, I just didn't have time. And, but yeah, the health reason was number one. And it, unfortunately it did affect me. I, I've had a really bad health scare this year. Mm-hmm. I, I ended up in the hospital for a few days and I, it, it's, I think it's a important for people to really look at what they're drinking, how much they're drinking and is it worth drinking all that? And it's just, I think it's just good for anyone to do that occasion.
0: Yeah, I, I 100% agree with you, and I think I think it, it you know it was brave, and I think that it's something that you know people need to consider, um, you know, constantly. Uh, what was your response to sort of the media craze that that followed that column? I was completely
2: shocked. I figured it would be you know relatively popular among the people I know on Twitter or mm-hmm. Facebook. I never expect. I, mean, I was getting calls from. TV stations and newspapers and magazines and wanting to do interviews. And I didn't. I just didn't feel like it at the time I right. thought I said everything I wanted to say at the time, so I didn't do any of them at, at the time. But I, I was shocked at how I think it was, if I remember correctly, it was the number one article on our website for the whole year. Wow. Which which blew me away because, I, like I said, I thought it was going to be well read for a Beard Nut column, but I didn't think it was going to be. I didn't. That, caught totally off guard how popular it
0: was yeah it it really did kind of go all over the place and i think it started a lot of good conversations and and like i said i'm hopeful that we'll you know continue to have those those conversations going forward uh Mm -hmm. for folks um but so you are still so while you're not writing the you know the beer column anymore you are obviously still doing your crime beat reporting but also beyond that i've noticed uh you're also moved into what i'm guessing is another area of passion for you which is uh, running a, a website called the com, You're kind of like a horror blogger.
2: Oh, uh, I just do it. You know, <laughs> I, I started as something just fun because I miss writing just for fun. Yeah. You know, like, I I love being a reporter. I loved, but, I mean, when I'm writing, I just wanted something to as fun. I've always been a horror fan. Like, I was the weird kid who subscribed to Fangoria magazine when I was uh, in school, when I was in... You know, when people had brown paper bags as book covers, I had horror movie posters as book covers. <laughs> I've always been into horror, and I like—I read constantly. I mean, I probably read two or three books a week, and mostly horror. And I Like, I didn't have a lot of people to talk about it, with just because, I don't know, a lot of people are super horror fans like I am. So I was like, oh, what the hell, I'll start a blog. It cost me three bucks of a domain for the year. And, you know, there's no pressure. I can do whatever I want. If I don't feel like writing, if I don't feel like it, I don't care if it gets... 20 people visiting or 200 people visiting. Yeah, it's just no pressure fun to write.
0: And some of your recent posts include, uh, you know, their titles like Baby Teeth, Proof That Children Are Evil, and (laughs) Camp Slasher, A Love Letter to 80s Slasher Flicks. But it's not just uh, you know just reviews and 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 sort of you know things along those lines. You also wrote a post recently that I thought was in pretty important. You know about diversifying your reading and watch uh, and your watch list to include voices and groups that are often excluded. You know from more mainstream horror content. And obviously, that that mirrors a conversation that's happening in in the beer world and beyond. Uh, but in the post, and again, forgive me to just you know quote some of this here, is that, I don't know why, but sometime last year near the beginning of my COVID-inspired life change to a hermit, it hit me. Near- nearly every book I read was by someone like me. Nearly everything I read was by white men. It wasn't a conscious decision, but for the most part, white men were the most well-known authors in my favorite genres, horror and revolutionary war era nonfiction but I felt it was important to branch out and to seek out authors who were different than me, women and men and women are women, men and women of color, LGBTQTIA, you know, and you concluded it by saying, you know, diversity in your author choice can lead to good results. You know, what was your, what was your thinking there? What was that experience like? It's just,
2: I, I like I said, I really don't know what really hit me, but I was people, what people experience in their life is going to color what they write, no matter fiction, nonfiction. And it's going to come through in their writing. Uh, If what I experienced in my life will be totally different than a Hispanic woman, will uh, experience. And what, even if we're given the same, this is what you're going to write. This is the type of, this is the plot. This is these characters. It's going to be totally different because of what we went through with life. So it comes through in the writing because everything's, everyone experiences something different. And if it's all white men, we all have the same basic background, Mm -hmm. you know, some might be rich, some might be poor, but it's, you know, we had the same general experience growing up and going through life. And I just thought it was important to read by other people who have different backgrounds, see how they view things. And even like I said, it comes through even in fiction. I've read many, many excellent books by women, people, people of color, uh, everything. And it's, uh, it's fantastic. I mean, I, I just I just finished a book the other day. It was basically it's uh, by a Icelandic author about vampires in and Austri- in Alaska, and but it's it's interesting. I, I just I think it makes it it's important to have diversity in what you read.
0: Um, sort of in final words here, you know, somebody who has worked as a you know a, a, a reporter for twenty years has covered the beer scene, uh, you know has you know, has written about a, a wide variety of topics. You know, what kind of advice do you have for you know reporters who are coming up either in the beer space or outside of it? You know, what does it take to be a great reporter?
2: Well, you need to. There's actually, I mean, it's a lot different than when I first started. When I first started to be a good reporter, you needed to be able. To, know how to write and you know just the basic reporting skills who what when where why get all that now you have to know so much more make sure you study everything you need to know about online uh seo uh story placement hell take photography classes learn every even if there's social media classes take those you need to it's so much more so much more involved the writing is part of it you still need to be a good writer you still need to know how to pay attention and how to Transfer what you see to what you into words, but you also need to know how to get it out because everything is, uh, you know, online of dependent now. You have to have those skills. If you don't have those skills, you're not going to be able to succeed. You can't just write an article and let it go. You have to know beyond that now. So you need to know some photography skills. You need to know how to, what SEO, what best words, know how to look at different, you know, Google Analytics, you know, you get to study all these things. You have to know these things and what works and what doesn't. Uh, so don't just rely just on reporting skills because it's not enough anymore. You need to be on that. So that's my only advice. Just learn as many different skills and as you can so you give yourself a great package when you're going to look for a job.
0: Well, Norm, I want to thank you so much for, for coming on and, and certainly being open and honest as always and for your work. And you know, like I've said before, I, I certainly miss your column, but certainly respect, you know, the reasons for stepping away from it. And I think it opened some important conversations. But I do hope to see you sometime in the future. You know, maybe maybe in court, hopefully not. Maybe maybe, <laughs> maybe more hopefully at Norm Day or something along those lines. But I you know, I hope that you're doing well and I hope to see you soon. All right. Well, thanks, Andy. Welcome back to our conversation with Greg Taylor of Source Brewing, a sponsor of the Beer Edge podcast. You also have some other exciting news. Why don't you tell us about uh, the new location?
1: Source Brewing will be opening up our second location. It's going to be, us. we have the Farmhouse Brewery in Colts Neck, and this will be Source Urban Brewery in the heart of Fishtown neighborhood of Philadelphia, which is really exciting. There's a lot of Creative and artistic energy with bars and restaurants and, and other artists in town that we're we're really looking forward to moving in there and um delivering some excellent beer drinking experiences. If we could direct people um to careers at sourcebrewing.com. Uh if you're qualified for our diversity and inclusion scholarship, so you're part of a, a group that may be underrepresented in the brewing industry, this can be females, ethnic minorities, uh, transgender, you know, any sort of um, you know, underrepresented group, you're eligible for the scholarship. So we could shoot us an email to careers at sourcebrewing.com and just tell us why you're interested in getting in the brewing industry. Also, if people are in the Philadelphia area and looking for employment as chefs, beer tenders, hostesses, line cooks, we would love to hear from you. And uh, we encourage you to apply also at careers at sourcebrewing.com.
0: Thanks for listening to the Beer Edge podcast. My partner, John Hall, and I work hard to bring you fresh and insightful content related to the ever-changing world of craft beer. We're passionate about beer and independent journalism. If you're interested in supporting Beer Edge, Visit our website, BeerEdge.com, which is updated regularly with new content, interviews, and articles. Please also consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your episodes. You can also subscribe to the Beer Edge newsletter on our website. Is there anyone you think that we should be talking to? Please drop us a line at Andy at BeerEdge.com with your thoughts. Thanks for your support.